and, and that sense of socialism and social democracy has prevailed in Scotland and that, that kind of you know protect you know your neighbour and help your neighbour and all of that sort of thing and even the Christian love thy neighbour kind of thing come into all of that as well so that sort of mindset has it means that Scotland is it's very very you know we've we very very different um, thinking on lots of things. Hello, all you good folks out there. George Collins here again on World Beat. I hope you're doing well wherever and whenever you are tuning in. Now, I'm a still a bit of an outsider to UK politics, despite being on the Ungag podcast for almost five years now. Still earning my wings, I would say. But, boy, there's been a lot to keep up with in the last few years, hasn't it? We are uh, seven years on from the 2014 Scottish Independence Referendum. A referendum that narrowly failed uh, 55 to 44 percent, which is as far as a countrywide vote is pretty razor thin margin, if you ask me. And in that time, we've had so much uh, political upheaval, not just in the UK, but around the world between Brexit, a bunch of EU drama, the 2016 elections, the Tory elections that have uh, happened or rather the elections that have swept the Tories into power in the United Kingdom. And from what I can tell, seems like there's been a real uh, reconsideration of that Scottish vote and whether or not independence is now in the cards. And is this the time for a referendum? There's so many questions to dissect. And as usual, I certainly can't do that alone. So joining me to discuss all this is Neil Scott. Neil is a primary school teacher in Scotland and the founder of the Ungagged podcast. He's been a Yes Scotland organizer since 2011, and prior to that was a local organizer and the online coordinator for the Scottish Socialist Party. He also worked as an activist in peace organizations and anti-apartheid work, among many other causes, throughout the 80s and 90s in Northern Ireland, and he joins us now from Beersden in Scotland. Uh, Neil, thank you so much for joining World Beat today. Not a problem. Nice Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, as usual, uh, I mean, we've, we've got a lot to dissect, but I always like to start with a bit of background on the uh, person themselves. And so, you originally came up in Northern Ireland, and uh, should be noted from those dates that that is the time of the Troubles, the uh, Catholic and Protestant conflict that really ravaged the country for that period. What, what was it like growing up in that environment? Like, how, how conscious were you of that conflict, and, and how did it influence you? Yeah, do you know, it's been interesting over the past few weeks. I don't know whether you've seen, um, I know that it's, uh, Kent Brown has been doing the, the, the chat show uh, rounds over there in America with his, you know, advertising his new film, Belfast. Um, Brana's, now I haven't seen the film yet, but Brana's upbringing was probably a, not far off my own upbringing. I'm from a... Um, I suppose, like using the the, um, the terms of the, the conflict over there, I'm from a Protestant background. Well, similar where the similarities with Brana are concerned, he talks about his street before the troubles kicking in, being you know mixed. So there was Catholics and Protestants living side by side, and he had Catholic friends and all that sort of thing. My upbringing in the seventies was similar to that because. In the street that I lived, you know, there were Catholics and Protestants. My best friend all the way through the 70s was a, a Catholic. And 
Um, yeah, so when, when you're you know, young, when you're little, you um, suddenly find out that there's something going on. When, I mean, the first thing that, um, first time that I kind of clicked with me that something was going on was when someone said to me, do you know that your friend Mickey's a Catholic? And I was like, you know, what is that? I didn't even know what that meant. At the time, he was just my, my pal. And then, um, you know, the, the town that I lived in, it was a mid-Ulster town, slowly but surely became, I suppose, what you would call militarized. You had barricades going up. You had, um, you know, there was curfews, really, um, I suppose you could call them, where you weren't allowed into the actual center of the town after certain times. Um, and all of the, you know, and, and then you had the, I mean, uh, an everyday um, thing for me was, you know, low-flying helicopters and um, army on the streets and stuff like that. So, yeah, it, it was, a, it, I suppose it was a, you know, when you're a child, you don't, everything seems normal. And, and it's like being, I suppose, like a, a frog slowly boiling when, you know, you don't know you're being kind of militarized and boiled when you're that age because it's just so slow and quiet how these things happen. And then, um, yeah, then there were things like, you know, I've this vivid memory of Mickey and I, my friend Mickey and I, would, would climb these two parallel trees right to the top and a bomb went off about, I suppose probably about a mile away. This bomb went off in the town and not being, you know, I remember us not being that surprised about it. Um, I'm actually quite excited about it. When you're that age, you're like, wow, this is something that's happened in our time. Um, and it was, um, I remember it was a, a controlled explosion. It was a bomb that had been found. And in our town, there was a bridge like that. It's hard, it's hard to explain, actually. If you look up the town ban bridge and you'll see there's a bridge in the middle of it. It's like the, the world's first flyover is right in the middle of Bambridge. It was built in the 1800s. But they used it, when they found bombs, they used it, they put the bombs underneath the bridge, you know, for controlled explosions. So this was a controlled explosion. And I remember after it then, you know, running down the town with Mickey and seeing, you know, the bits of the car and everything that had, you know, been strewn across the streets and broken glass and, 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 and whatever. So yeah, so you, you become, I suppose it's like any, it's like conflict across the world. When you see children, it's normalized it's, it's it's kind of a normal thing although what was never normal for me was the sectarianism I, I just never it never was normalized i never got that and i've um you know i i, I always had in fact I, I, I at some stage in my life the majority of my friends were were catholic so it, it, it was normalized pretty young i would say and why do you why do you suppose you never were influenced by that sectarianism like uh, what was it you think that kept you from really falling deep into that when so many other people obviously did i think um that came down to family really my so my of stories on all sides like in my family but i guess my grandparents um on my dad's side had witnessed the original troubles in the 1920s and they, you know, that influenced my father in that they pretty much made sure he stayed away from, you know, organizations that would have been sectarian. You know, like for, for Protestants, 
and, and you know what's not really kind of understood i guess um, across the world is that you know there's a thing called the orange order and for lots of protestants that's it's like it's a, it's a civic organization that organizes things like you know children's creches and you know and does lots of local organizing and uh, and does lots of charity stuff and whatever and but it's a very sectarian organization so um my dad was kept away from those sorts of things and then he in turn kept me away and then the other side my mother's side my um my grandfather on my, mo- my mother's side his father had been in the first world war and was one of the kind of ulster men who were uh, encouraged to you know go and volunteer and he saw well he, his brother was killed and he saw horrible things and he um and actually was you know, he, 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 he um, I, I suppose he, he, he suffered from post-traumatic stress in those days, went, went unrecognized and became an alcoholic. And when my grandfather was young, one of the things that he said to him was, if you, now this, this was probably, you know, a, a drunk speaking, but you can feel it, you can actually feel the, the passion in it. He said, if you ever join the Orange Order or the army or anything like that, I'll take the hatchet to you, was what he said. <laughs> so my, my, my grandfather on that side then wasn't uh, involved in any of that. So then I, I grew up in that. And my dad, all the way through the Troubles, worked in Belfast and worked on both sides. He was a, you know, my dad was a joiner. He was a builder. And um, so we saw, like, at first hand, the things that were going on in Belfast. And in fact... Um, for it was a large uh, corporation actually was doing a lot of the rebuilding stuff in Belfast in the 70s and 80s um, and he worked for them as a, a foreman and he, he would have had to he was the middleman that the corporation had to hand over um, what you know I suppose like mafiosa style um, protection money so um, yeah he my dad, when anything happened during the troubles, as a child, I would witness him. You know, no matter who was doing the, the carrying out the act of violence, he would be, um, yeah, very vociferous against both. You know, terrorist sides, I suppose. So that kept me away from that, I guess. And so, what uh, you touched on a little bit, but what were the politics like at home? I, well, again, my, my grandfather on my mum's side was a, a huge influence. My grandfather was, in fact, after the Second World War, during the first or during the Second World War, he didn't join up in, in Ireland as a whole. And in Northern Ireland, um, they didn't conscript. So you, it, it, you were given a choice because they, they knew, the, the government knew they couldn't conscript because it, it would have caused huge resentments in Ireland if they, if they tried to conscript in Northern Ireland. So because of his father, my grandfather then wouldn't join up. And then he went on, he, he worked in a, um, an aircraft factory during the war. But after the war, so during the war, he became politicized. He met lots of people who were left wing. And he joined in the, at, the, at the end of the Second World War, he joined the Communist Party, which is very unusual in Northern Ireland, especially within the, you know, the Protestant community. He joined it for a day, um, George. He joined it for a day. And, and the reason why it was for a day 
was because the Communist Party asked him and his friends to uh, help out in the election that you know followed the, the Second World War, and they said that they would bring them their you know their lunch and their tea and stuff, and they never organised it. And he thought, if they can't organise a cup of tea for us, I don't know if they're going to be able to organise government. So, but it's it real... not a great starting point, there, guys. Yeah. You know, it's uh, like what they used to say with the old Soviet Union. You know, we can send uh, we can send the first man to space, but we can't make a pair of pants. Well, that's it. Absolutely. So, but he, he was always then. He was a labour man. He was he was um, you know the Northern Irish Labour Party. Um, what and then I think you know there was various different um, you know uh, representations of, of Labour parties and whatever throughout the years. And and in the end, you know, he he would have been very rare in that he was voting for a party that was called the SDLP, which would have been seen as a nationalist party. So that um, all through the troubles, the SDLP, John Hume, I, I don't know whether you've heard of John Hume, was the leader of the SDLP. Um, he was one of the, you know, the, the main people who uh, brought about peace in Northern Ireland. You know, uh, and he would have been a nationalist, he would have been a Catholic nationalist. And my, my grandfather uh, voted SDLP really um, all his life, which would have been extremely unusual for a Protestant to do. Mm. So all of that, you know, kind of went some way in influencing me, really, yeah. No doubt. And was your, was your mother very politically active at all? No, not at all. My mum and my dad, my mum certainly not. My dad um, wouldn't have been politically active, but would have, would have had, um, you know, strong political opinions. Um, he, in fact, at, at one stage, my dad thought he might go on as a local councillor, but then pulled out. But um, he... My dad was very, very much against um, sectarianism and, uh, and and all those things, and, and you know, especially you know during that thirty-year time of the troubles, he was very vociferously against um, you know the, the, the terrorism and the well, for, you know, I suppose some people call them the freedom fighters and whatever, like. But uh, he would have been very, very much against that because I think you know. It's, it's it's all it's. I think it's difficult for people on the outside of Northern Ireland to understand this. That the majority of Northern Irish people were against, you know, that that war. Um, because it being such a small population, everyone was affected. So if um, you know, if a bomb went off in our town and hurt or killed people, it was usually friends or family. Do you know? Um. So yeah, so so the, so the the war as such was carried out by small groups uh, that were really not representative of of Northern Ireland. So you um you started entering activism uh, fairly early on in life. Um, I believe you were talking about how by the age of uh, thirteen you were involved in a lot of um, different causes. And what uh, what was it that really drove you into that at that time? Because it sounds like that's also about the time that you started to become a bit more aware of these more sectarian politics. Did, did that have an influence in driving you into that, or were there other factors at play? Yeah, there are other factors, really. I've, I've thought about this a lot, actually, because it's something that you know happens, and then you tend not to reflect on it. But now, as I get older, I am kind of I have been kind of thinking about it, and I think really, from what I can you know trace back and try to remember. I'm not religious at all. I'm, uh, I'm a bit of an atheist, whatever. But at the time, 
I when I, when I was thirteen or fourteen, um, how this came about was really quite it was quite funny really in a way because where my grandparents lived, they lived in the countryside, right beside a church. So on a Sunday, my father, you know, liked to go and visit them. So me and my two sisters were sent to church. My mom and dad didn't go to church, but we were sent to church. And it was kind of like a crash, I guess. It was like a way of uh, them getting a break from us, I suppose. So we went to church, not as a family, just as three siblings. And then um, it was an Anglican church. So we um, were, we went through, um, what's it called again? Uh, oh, I can't remember what it's called. Um, Confirm, uh, sorry, we went through confirmation. That's what it was mm-hmm. called. And uh, the minister that we had at the time was um, quite an ecumenical guy. And he would bring us to events where all of the communities came together, all of the religious communities kind of came together. And as well as that, then you had um, organizations like Christian Aid, who, um, you know, at the time had anti um, apartheid campaigns going on. Um, and through that, then I got really interested in the, the anti-apartheid thing. Um, when I uh, we were at uh, a, a, one of these ecumenical things, and there were um, South African speakers there who were talking about apartheid, and I then sent away for a UN report at thirteen on apartheid and whoever it was that packaged this report up must have noticed that I was from Northern Ireland and they put in the package a report they'd done on um, on Ireland. Mm. And that kind of then, you know, gave me another perspective on what was going on, you know, around me. So that, that's how I kind of got involved with that. And then CND is an odd one. I, I, I honestly can't understand, I can't remember how I got involved, but I do remember at the age of 13 sending a letter to the whoever it was, was the president of CND over in England. And just just for folks who don't know, uh, CND stands for what? It's the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. So it's the the sign um, that you see, the peace sign that you see, which looks like an inverted Y in a circle with a a line down the middle. Mm -hmm. um, It was designed for CND. Um, So, yeah, I... um, I remember sending a letter to the, the president of, of, of CND and it was because I'd been speaking to my neighbor who was five years younger than me. So I was 13, he was eight. And I told him, I remember telling him all about, you know, the, the destructive power of nuclear weapons. And at the time in Scotland, you know, the, um, Polaris, the American base was over here. And, you know, I was saying like over in Scotland, they've got nuclear weapons that could wipe us all out. And like scaring this eight year old. You know? <laughs> And I sent this letter about this to the president of CND in England. I don't know, I must have got the address from somewhere, maybe church or something. But um, I got this letter back from the president of CND, uh, you know, and him telling me, you know, uh, how fantastic that it was, that it was spreading the word and all this sort of stuff. And I, you know, and that got me, I mean, I think when children get feedback like that, it, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it can activate them. So... Yeah, that was my, that's my, my youngest memory of those two organizations. I guess, and then, and then when I was, a couple of years later, I remember, now, coming from the Protestant um, community, I was taught in a state school. So there's, you know, there's Catholic schools and there's state schools in Northern Ireland. And, you know, never, 
never the twain shall meet. There's, um, there are some cross-community schools, but they only they make up only something like two or three percent of, of schools in Northern Ireland. But so most Catholics go to Catholic schools and most Protestants go to state schools. But in the state school, in my high school, I um, was in the library one day and I saw a book um, on Marx. And I thought, I'm going to have a look at this. And come from a Protestant perspective, come from that, in, in that community, Marxism was seen as terrorism. You know, the, the, it was equated in, you know, the Sinn Féin, uh, IRA and whatever had lots of Marxists. And so, so the, the, the Protestant community would have said that Marxism was, you know, terrorism. But so I remember getting this book off the shelf and sitting in the library with my, you know, my jotter, um, trying to cover this book and reading it. And I thought, I want to read more about this. I remember reading the first chapter and thinking, it's really interesting. This sounds like the sort of thing that I you know, can agree with. So I slipped the book in my bag. I stole the book. Um, I still have the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's on my shelf next door. Um, so this book on Marx, and, yeah, and that, was a, you know, that opened my eyes as well. And from that, then I, um, you know, I guess I started buying literature and, um, and, and, and getting involved in local groups and going to um, peace marches and things like that from that. Um, yeah, so being a rebel, I think, helps. And having a rebellious, you know, grandfather, I think, did help a wee bit as well. And no doubt it uh, runs in the blood, as they might say. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, in the next segment, we'll uh, move to when Neil traveled to Scotland in 1993, the state of the country, and uh, what exactly he got involved with there. So stick with us on World Beat. We will be right back. <laughs> 